Welcome to the CEC report for the 26th of May 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and with me today is CEC Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks Elisa. And on today's show, beware a 50% wipeout of Aussie banks and who benefits from the Manchester bombing. So firstly today, beware a 50% wipeout of Aussie banks. Now there's been many, many warnings from some of the highest level officials and highest level and most important organisations in Australia, um, from the Reserve Bank uh, to various others, about the over-bloated Australian real estate bubble. And there are more this week. Um, there, is also, there are also consequences already with a downgrade of the bank. So we'll just look at these one by one. Firstly, Standard & Poor's has downgraded 23 financial institutions in the country. These are mainly small banks and credit unions. Uh, but, so they left the big four. They didn't actually downgrade the big four plus Macquarie, but they only left them untouched because they are considered too mm. big to fail. They think that the government will always keep them going. Exactly. So that, but, but the reason they downgraded the small ones is worse for the big ones. So that should tell you how we're, we're getting very close to a bailout, mm -hmm. Elisa. The biggest bailout in Australian history is on the cards. Based, that, that's what this downgrade is pointing to. Mm. And based on the fact that they would have downgraded the big banks were it not that the government backs them, you could call it a system-wide downgrade. It is a system-wide downgrade. Um, and it is based entirely on a dangerous build-up, according to uh, Standard & Poor's, of household debt and rising property prices. Um, the other thing to remember is that the OECD report that came out in March found that our ratio of household debt to GDP is the third highest in the world at 123%. So this shows the vulnerability we have here. Uh, and the report by Standard & Poor's also stressed that residential home loans represent two thirds of our bank's assets uh, and pointed to Australia's um, general economic weakness as the background to that. We're a couple of interest rate rises away from a major explosion mm. of the property bubble. And, that, and that's borne out as well by a second warning this week from investment fund JCP Investment Partners. Now they warned that an Irish style housing crash could wipe out half the capital of our banks, bringing on Australia's subprime crisis they called it. Um, and we'll go through a bit of about their warning and firstly show, here's a graph on the screen here which shows uh, the growth, extraordinary growth in mortgages, but in particular investor mortgages. So the, the top line is, in, is the growth of investor mortgages since 1990 or 1993. The second line is total bank lending. The bottom line, the dark line, is bank lending to businesses. So what you're seeing in the middle and the second bottom line is bank lending to normal owner-occupied houses. So what you're seeing in that growth to mortgages, or that, that, that the growth, the, the lending to investors is what's driving up this whole property bubble, right? And it's coming at the expense of banks doing what they're supposed to be mm. doing, which is putting credit into the businesses that produce our goods and provide our jobs, etc. Into the right? economy. And what happens with investors, Elisa, when you have that few interest rate rises, you slight fall, even very slight falls in property prices, the investors, it's not their house they're, not, they're living in, they're not motivated to keep it, they head for the hills. Mm -hmm. right? They go, oh, I'm going to sell now. And then the second one says, I'm going to sell now. Next thing you know, you've got a full-blown crash in your hands. Mm. And this second graph here, 
uh, shows that about half of all the nation's mortgage debt is in the hands of borrowers whose debt is more than four times larger than their gross income, meaning they are not in a good position to sustain that debt and could easily go into default. They're the people that we call mortgage stressed, right? So they're, they're right on the edge, one or two rate rises and they're over it. And the, the report uh, by this investment group points out that the average loan to income ratio right now is 6.4 and that's more than double the old banking rule of thumb as they call it not to lend more than three times a household's income. income. Yep. So now their conclusion at the base of this report is that and they have various estimates based on different assumptions on how bad the meltdown might be of the real estate market and so forth and various other assumptions but the worst scenario is that a crash of the housing market could wipe out 50% of the equity of Australian banks. Uh, at best, and there's some in between, but at the best scenario, it might only wipe out 17%. So even the best scenario is not that great. Well, look, I, I think the worst case scenario is an underestimation, right? Um, the, the actual real capital of the banks, the real capital is less than... Uh, 4% of their assets really, their real capital. That means that it, it doesn't take a fit, it takes like a maybe a 20%, 30% decline in house prices to start, if, unless that's, if that's not marked to market, then the banks can pretend they're fine. But if that's marked to market, if the banks had to put that on their books, they would already be underwater. Um, but even at 50, just say it's only 50%, what that means is Banks, they're not, they're not lending to businesses now, mm -hmm. right? They wouldn't have anything to lend to anybody anymore under a 50% impairment. Those are the conditions that create economic depressions, right? The government would have to step in and do a massive bailout, and then the government will say, and to pay for this bailout, you know, forget Gonski, <laughs> half education funding, half health funding, like they've done in, in a lot of these other countries like Greece and Italy and, and um, Ireland Across and Europe. the United Kingdom. Yeah. And the other question is, um, this is what the banks stand to lose just from a collapse of the housing bubble. But as we have said many times on this show, there's, there are ticking time bombs sitting on the balance sheets of the banks in the form of highly leveraged speculative instruments known as derivatives. What yeah. would be the impact of that if this cycle un un unleashes? Well, they, well, well see, they, and we can put this on the, on the screen as well, the growth rate in derivatives, especially since the, the 2008 crash in Australia, the growth rate has been off the charts, right? It's unbelievable. It's gone from a bit less than 14 trillion in 2008 to now around $35 trillion, right? And those contracts are all capitalised by the bank's capital. Right, and, and 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 you know the, the deposits and stuff that banks have. So again, if if their capital's impaired, they're going to be all sorts of uh, there's a there's a knock-on effect through those contracts, right? And these are all flimsy bets in the first place. And those those things, because just say from an accounting standpoint, if you for those who know accounting rules, even if a bank's got half, loses half its capital, as long as it's got some capital, it's still as solvent as a bank, right? But because these derivatives are such a big unknown, mm. it can set off a fuse in there that triggers a meltdown in the derivatives. And before you know it, the banks are on the hook for contracts that they can't have any hope of paying. And next thing you know, all their capital's gone, mm. right? When derivatives have gone bad in the last 20 years, 
they tend to take big banks down with them, starting with Bearings Bank in 1995 and Lehman Brothers in 2008 was the last one, right? And this is what could be on the cards here. And this is also part of the reason why there was quite a panic from the banks when the budget proposal for a levy on the banks came out because they immediately reacted, reacted in their reports to the government saying, well, uh, we can't include derivatives in this. Or some no. of them said, don't include derivatives, don't tax those. And others said, only the netted derivatives and so well, these contra- there's so many, there's, These derivatives contracts that they've, held, they've got, this, this $35 trillion is so huge. If the government was actually seriously followed through and said, no, we're going to tax them all, mm. right? The banks would have, they wouldn't be able to come up with the money, I can mm. tell you. Mm. So after the break, we're going to talk about an update on what's happening with the solution, which is Glass-Steagall. Welcome back to the CEC Report, where we're discussing a potential 50% wipeout of Aussie banks. Now, the solution to this is Glass-Steagall, as we've talked about many times, because what that would do is completely separate any bank that gambles in derivatives from any bank that takes deposits. And therefore, if there is a crash, uh, the banks that gamble in derivatives will not affect people's savings and deposits. They can go bankrupt, and the the banks we use and small businesses use, etc., that necessary for the real economy, they'll be safe. Mm. Now, the good thing in Australia is that more and more we are beginning to hear Glass-Steagall as a household word. It's more and more on the lips of TV presenters and reporters and so forth. Uh, one example just this week was on Monday where Sky News interviewer Peter Van Onselen asked Richard Di Natale, the leader of the Greens Party, uh, about Glass-Steagall, about great breaking up the banks, and he said that he does believe there is an argument for doing so. Uh, So that's very good. Now, what we're finding, though, in the United States and elsewhere is that it is gaining so much traction, Glass-Steagall, that there's a huge backlash. And you wrote about that this week, Robert, in the Australian Alert Service. Um, And we're going to show a video clip here, which is an example of the hysteria that we've seen in reaction to the support for Glass-Steagall. Well, because what happened was two weeks ago, Donald Trump himself said, Mm. yes, he's looking at breaking up the banks and the banks had this mini meltdown. And there's a guy in the Trump administration, though, the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, who has proven himself to be a shill for them, right? And so what we're about, um, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin was appearing before the US Congress, and Elizabeth Warren, the senator, who is the, the biggest champion of Glass-Steagall in the US Senate, she grilled him on whether Trump intended to break up the banks. And what you hear Mnuchin doing is where you can make up your own minds. It's pathetic in its own right, but it's entirely contradictory of everything that's been said up until now. Thank you. Um, So I want to go back to your remarks about Glass-Steagall. As you know, the original Glass-Steagall was put in place to divide commercial banks and investment banks. The law was repealed in 1999, which created the two big-to-fail banks, uh, like Citigroup and J.P. Morgan Chase, that, that got so large. And since then, there have been many proposals, including my own bipartisan bill, with Senators McCain, Cantwell, and King for a 21st century Glass-Steagall that would break up the banks and modernize the wall between commercial banking and investment banking. Now, I want to look at the history of this. The president and this administration have said repeatedly that they support a 21st century Glass-Steagall. It was in the Republican Party platform. Donald Trump said it specifically a few weeks before the election. You said, quote, we need a 21st century Glass-Steagall at your confirmation hearing. 
Uh, and now you've just said exactly the opposite. You know, in the past few months, you and the president have had a number of meetings with big bank CEOs and lobbyists. Is that the reason for the reversal on Glass-Steagall? No, not, not, not at all. And there actually wasn't a reversal. So uh, uh, wasn't a reversal? Uh, no, no, let me just explain. So the, I'm, the I'm Republican platform ready. did have Glass-Steagall. We, during the campaign, and I had the opportunity to work with the president on this, specifically came out and said we do support a 21st century Glass-Steagall. Yes. Which is, that means that there are aspects of it, okay, that we think may make sense. But we never said before that we supported a full separation of banks and investment I'm, I'm banks. Sorry. If, if we Aspects, had said that, we would have... Let me just stop have, you right there, Mr. You're, Secretary. You're not, you're not letting me finish. Yeah, I'm not, because right. I really have to understand what you've just said. There are aspects of Glass-Steagall that you support, but not breaking up the banks and separating commercial banking from investment banking. What do you think Glass-Steagall was, if that's not right at the heart of it? Again, I'm well aware of what Glass-Steagall was. And as you may know, the original concern about Glass-Steagall was actually about conflicts, not about credit risk. And if we had supported a full Glass-Steagall, we would have said at the time that we believed in Glass-Steagall, not a 21st century Glass-Steagall. We were very clear in differentiating it. Now, I, I uh, now realize that I had not realized that your bill was named the 21st uh, century. Yes, Glass and Eagle. has so, been yeah, for I, three years now. I, 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 I apologize that I was not aware of that. So we were. But, but I still haven't heard the answer to my question. What do you think Glass-Steagall was if it wasn't separating commercial banking from investment bank, uh, from, from, uh, uh, from ordinary bank? Again, the fundamental part of Glass-Steagall was, as you've just outlined, in the separation of investment banking from commercial banking because people were concerned about conflict. And how do you, how do you separate security? without breaking up the big banks that have integrated these two things? Uh, again... The, the integration of commercial banking and investment banks has gone on for a long period of time. That is not what caused the problems during the financial crisis. And oh. if we did go back to a full separation, you would have an enormous impact on so, liquidity and lending to small so let me and get, medium-sized businesses. Let me businesses. get this straight. Let me get this straight. You're saying that you are in favor of Glass-Steagall, which breaks apart the two arms of banking, no, uh, regular banking and commercial banking, except you don't want to break apart the two parts of banking. This is like something straight out of George Orwell. You're saying simultaneously you're in favor of breaking up the banks. That's what Glass-Steagall is. I, I, I've never said we're in favor of breaking up the banks and separating. If we had, it would uh, okay, have been very let me, simple. Let me try it one more we time. We're going to run out of time here, but I have to try this one more time. What does it mean to be in favor of 21st century Glass-Steagall if it does not mean breaking apart these two functions in banking? You know what? I'd be more than happy to come see no, you I, and follow I, up and talk about this. Just tell me what this. it means. Had, had we, we never came just out tell me what it means we should to, separate Tell me what 21st century Glass-Steagall means if it doesn't mean breaking apart those two functions. It's an easy question uh, or actually, an impossible question. It's actually a complicated question I'll because bet. there's many aspects of it. Okay, The simple answer, which we don't support, is breaking up banks from investment banks. We think that would be a huge mistake. But again, I'm more than happy to listen to your ideas on it. You obviously have strong views, and I'd be happy to follow up and listen to I, you. This is just bizarre. 
the idea that you can say we are in favor of Glass-Steagall but not breaking up the We never piece. said we Thank were in you. favor of Glass-Steagall. We said we were in favor of a 21st century Glass-Steagall. It couldn't be clearer. We are in, we are in favor of a bill that is called breaking up the banks, only don't break up the banks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is, this is Senator Tillis. Now, Elisa, just to show what a liar Steve Mnuchin is, he says there, we didn't promise Glass-Steagall. Well, in July 2016, Donald Trump's campaign inserted these words into the Republican Party's platform. Quote, the Dodd-Frank law, the Democrats' legislative Godzilla is crushing small and community banks and other lenders. We support reinstating the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933, which prohibits commercial banks from engaging in high-risk investment. End quote. So he's an absolute liar. And what I think has happened is the Wall Street crowd with Mnuchin on the inside are taking advantage of the political turmoil around the Trump administration to try and undermine this promise. Trump has a lot of things on his plate, right? Um, he, but he did say break up the banks two weeks ago and they're going to try and do everything they can mm. to white ant it. Yeah. So call in for more information on that for a free copy of our Australian Alert Service and we'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back to the CEC Report. Who benefits from the Manchester bombing? Now, on the 22nd of May, as everyone would know, a suicide bomber killed 22 young people and injured many, many more at an Ariana Grande concert in Manchester in the United Kingdom. And the bomber, Salman Abedi, was in Libya just one week earlier where his father and brother were suspected of having links to ISIS. Now, you can't ignore the fact that this occurred very close to the British election, which is on the 8th of June, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that Jeremy Corbyn was very rapidly gaining on Prime Minister Theresa May. And I just want to take a quick snapshot of the background in which this is taking place because we've seen various elections that have gone um, in ways that no one could have predicted. But we're talking here about the heart of the British Empire the City of London and the Wall Street apparatus that run today's finance. We're talking about the country with, with the most unaccountable, undemocratic, elite ruling class, right? And we've got, we're talking about a guy, a candidate, Jeremy Corbyn, who represents the diametrical opposite of that. He's the greatest threat to the British establishment in its history. Mm -hmm. And this is occurring, if he were to be elected, you look at around the world what he would be slotting in with. You've got this extraordinary project, the Belt and Road Initiative, which China and a hundred other countries and institutions are involved with, which is transforming the planet very rapidly. There's a threat of the US getting involved with that, which is moving, and you can read more about that in the alert service this week. And you also have, as we've just mapped out, the very real threat of Glass-Steagall coming into effect, which would put out of its power Wall Street and the City of London. Which Corbyn supports, by the way. So, exactly. So just map out for us exactly what's happening in the campaign and the shift in the polls. All right, so Corbyn, when this campaign was announced, snap election, Corbyn was 25% behind Theresa May. 25%. Unbelievable in any, in any election. Un impossible to win. As of the... The, as of today's opinion polls, Elisa, that's just come out in the UK today, he is 5% behind because this guy is the most authentic politician anyone has ever seen in their history. He, he was prepared to be the most unpopular backbencher for 30 years while he fought every single crime the British government committed 
And of course, no one could call him a crime, but he did. He fought it, he fought it, he fought it. He, didn't, he has no lust for power whatsoever. He always put his hat in the ring to, to represent his ideas and the leadership. And because of the, the global change that's taking place with the voter revolt, he became the leader of the party. And now he's 5% behind becoming the leader of the British government, right? So he ran on his, he announced a manifesto of renationalizing privatized assets. None of this garbage anymore. We're going to take them back. Um, we're going to separate banks. We're going to set up a national investment bank to, to stop being a casino economy and put money into real industries in the UK, etc. The British people love it, mm. but they've been told, oh, we, Corbyn's unelectable. We hate him. But the other thing that happened was his, his um, standing in personal popularity polls has completely turned around. He holds huge election camp events, mm -hmm. totally public. Everyone comes, thousands of people. His opponent, Theresa May, refused to debate him because she knows he would whip her soundly just because of his authenticness. And all she can say is strong and stable, strong and stable, strong. She's a robot. She's an ugly looking robot. Sorry to say that, but she is. Um, they, they make her look like the emperor out of Star Wars and it fits. She, um, she holds these staged events miles away from people in the middle of nowhere. They make it look like there's a crowd around her and you take a step back and you see just a few people in the middle of nowhere, as far away from the public as possible. So you got and all this just, everything went against her. The day of the bombing, Elisa, was her worst ever day mm. in the campaign. She had to backtrack on a policy called the dementia tax. They called it, it was the, the first election, electoral leader in British history to actually backtrack on a policy in a campaign. She was flustered in her press conference. She was shrill. And everyone was saying that night, oh my goodness, what a turnaround. And then the bomb went off, mm -hmm. right? What do we know about the bombing? Because look, the CEC has documented this. Go on our website and look at what we put out about the, the Westminster attack a few months ago. March. In Britain, people have been blowing the whistle for a long time on how the security services there, especially MI5, have run this um, apparatus of terrorism. They call it the Covenant of Security. They have let all the world's terrorists base themselves in the UK, and initially it was, okay, you can set up here as long as you commit your attacks somewhere else. Governments around the world that were victims of these terrorists would complain, and the British would say, no, 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 you're not we're giving them... We're harbouring them here. This guy's family was involved in British intelligence attempts to assassinate Gaddafi in the 1990s. Gaddafi was the first world leader to blow the whistle on Al-Qaeda in the mid-90s, long before Al-Qaeda blew up the World Trade Centre, right? When the British and the French backed the Libyan revolution, where all these Al-Qaeda people from all the Middle East went to Libya, Al-Qaeda terrorists went to Libya to overthrow Gaddafi. The West went and backed them. This kid's family went back there to participate in that. He comes from a terrorist pedigree that's not just Libyan, it's British terrorist pedigree. So this stinks. We're going to have more to say about it, but this seems to be an absolutely blatant attempt to derail the campaign of a guy. If he got in, would represent a, a complete assault on this apparatus. And would change potentially the entire world. Now, there's more details on that story about Londonistan in the alert service, so ring in for a copy and get involved. Thanks for tuning into the CEC report. Thanks, Robert. Join us again next week. Before there was fake news, there was really fake news. How do we know what is true? The Australian Alert Service is the weekly magazine of the Citizens Electoral Council, which is committed to finding, verifying and publishing the truth about the state of the economy, about the crisis in the financial system and about those who push nations into wars and about the fight for our economic prosperity and peace. So why not subscribe today and stay informed with the truth? and support the fight.